Today, we're going to jump into our scripture at Luke 1, verses 46 through 56. This, uh, if you have been around the church for a while, you might have heard this passage of scripture referred to as the Magnificat. The Magnificat is uh, roughly translated as the song, the song of Mary, the song of magnificence. And this is what Mary sings in response to being met by the angel Gabriel. She says this. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his army, has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, and then she returned home. Friends, if you will maybe gather some of the reflection within your heart and uh, join me for some prayer. God, we come into this space of worship as individuals who carry very individual burdens. Some of our burdens are joyful, some of our burdens are heavy. Some of our burdens make us angry. Some of our burdens make us feel elated. We all come here with a different burden to carry. And so, God, We want to respond to you wholly as you ask us to respond in surrendering everything that we have into your hands. And so, Lord, we now surrender those burdens that we carry, the things that press us heavily into our chairs, the things that weigh on our hearts, the things that have us distracted and looking ahead into what's coming up next. We surrender them all to you and ask, Lord, that collectively we might stop focusing on our individuality and instead focus on how we are called to be one body, worshiping you with one voice, proclaiming the truth of one spirit. We pray, God, that that one truth will infiltrate our hearts and our collective heart, that as we continue to march toward Christmas, that we might be people who march with that joy, beating out the rhythm of our steps. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my friends, this week we continue participating in the Advent conspiracy. This is a really firm stand. Sorry about that. I had to wrestle that for a second. Uh, This week we continue with the Advent conspiracy, which as far as titles go for things that you do, Advent and conspiracy, those are two pretty big words for a really short title. Advent means to wait or to expect in hope. And then conspiracy means to plan or cooperate together for the purpose of overturning the powers that be. So when it comes to a title of 
the activity that we are engaged in these days, that's a big calling. And yet that is the calling that we are asked to do this Advent season as we join in the conspiracy of standing in opposition to a commercial holiday of Christmas that jingles at us through television commercials. Because while the commercial holiday of Christmas cheerfully chants, now more than newest, the best now, the Spirit speaks to us in a very different voice, in a quiet voice, in a still, small voice that says, wait, hope, expect, expect that what is coming is going to be even better than what you can get your hands on now. Hope, despite what you see in the news, despite what you experience in your heart in times of doubts and times of pain, hope anyway. And then wait, because something better is coming. Whether you can imagine it or not, particularly if you can't imagine it, expect that something better is coming, better than the sparkle of this season. In my opinion, to wait and to hope and to expect is definitely a conspiracy against the powers that be in our American society today that at Christmas time, like at all times, says now. Now, now, now. We don't wait. We get it now. But the truth is, this is not our conspiracy. This is nothing new. Because conspiring to transform our world with hope and peace and joy and love has been God's undertaking since the day creation began. Since Jesus' tiny lungs first screamed out into the night, since he exhaled his last breath as a spectacle on the cross, since the stone was rolled away and there was no more death to be found, no power left on earth to steal away our hope and our peace and our joy and our love, nothing can steal away. We can only surrender it. So, the last few weeks, along with conspiring together in hope and peace and joy and love, we have also been talking about these four themes, about worshiping fully and spending less and giving more and loving all. And we've talked about how worshiping fully requires us to act with reverence toward God in every moment in our lives and not just for an hour on Sundays. How worshiping fully asks us to conform every thought and every word and every action to reflect as best as we can God's intentions and desires for the world, intentions to bring good into the world and not harm. That's what we talked about the first weeks. Last week, we talked about spending less by both taking, talking about how we can literally spend less at the till and by wondering about what ways we could spend less time and worry and focus on ourselves and more time and energy on others. So this week we come to give more, which perhaps on the surface looks like a little bit of a contradiction from last week, because no doubt if we were just talking about presents, it would be a contradiction. How can we spend less in stores and have more under the tree? It can't be done. So that's not what we're talking about. But as we often find to be the case when we look through scripture, scripture says that it's less about what we do on the outside and more about who we are on the inside. 
And so when we shift our focus from spending less on the till to spending less time being self-absorbed, when we shift our focus from giving wrapped presents on Christmas Day to the giving of our hearts and souls to one another, then spending less and giving more make more sense. Spending less on being consumed by myself and giving more of myself and that joy and that freedom to others. So technically, that could be the sermon over, right? Don't you wish that were true? (laughs) Here's the thing. Giving more of ourselves doesn't just count when we want to give more of ourselves. Giving more of ourselves doesn't just count when we are full and we have something extra left over so that we can give that excess away. Giving more counts the most when we are unsure as to whether we have enough to give in the first place. Giving from what we have in excess is what our world and what our society teaches us to do. Our society teaches us to earn as much as we can and then to spend within our means. But that's not God's way. God's idea of giving more away is absolute foolishness in the eyes of the world, which is how we as Christians know that it's true. All we have to do is look at the life of Jesus, look at the witness of the scriptures, look at the movements of the Spirit over millennia, and we will see it time and time and time again. God teaches us to give in the face of the need, regardless of what we have to give, regardless of how much, regardless of what's left for us. God teaches us over and over and over again, give in the face of the need. I think that it's really good that we're talking about uh, giving more today because I don't think that anyone knew this better than Mary around the time of Jesus' birth. I want you to listen to how her conversation goes with the angel Gabriel. This happens right before our scripture passage for today when Gabriel is sent by God to announce to Mary that God has chosen her to be the one to carry the Savior. So the scripture goes like this. It says, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And so in other words, what Gabriel is saying to her is this. Hey, God thinks you're great. And God sent me here to tell you how great God thinks you are. That's what just happened. And Mary then responds this way. This is how scripture says Mary responds. Mary, in hearing that Gabriel thought that Mary was great, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of a greeting might this be. So God comes down and tells Mary, you're great. And Mary says, what? Now, I could hear my husband saying something about how this is such a woman response. Like when my husband's like, you look lovely today. And I'm like, did you just call me fat? It's not that. I don't think that Mary is reading into some sort of imaginary subtext here. I think that she is suspicious because she knows that angels only show up when something freaky is about to happen. And she was right. With one swoop of an angel's wings, God completely disrupted Mary's life 
with one big huge ask for her to give more than she reasonably had to give. He asked her to give over her wedding plans, to give over her good reputation, to give over her reproductive cycle. And in one fell swoop, God asks Mary to give over that traditional respectable life of a woman in first century Palestine. So that in the place of all of those dreams that she had for herself, in the place of the dreams that her family and friends had for her, God could instead appear on earth in the flesh. So that his tiny little infant screams could disrupt that harsh, that, that hush in that dark night in Bethlehem. So that God could then forever bring joy into a world that was going to be plagued with turmoil. Friends, God asked Mary to give more than could be reasonably expected of any woman, of any human. God asked her to give from all that she did not have. And then God showed up on earth in disruption. And as a result of this incredible ask and this incredible disruption, the result of that was the entire earth, including you and me, the entire earth for all time was gifted with hope and peace and joy and love and was welcomed into the eternal arms of God. That was the result of that ask. That was the result of that disruption. Which makes it really too bad that we as humans don't tend to do all that well with disruption, do we? And as Christians, we tend to do even worse with disruption than the average population. In the last 20 years that I've been a Christian, the hardest thing that I have found to be a part of in our larger Christian community, not just this church, but the church in the world, the hardest thing that I've found being part of the larger Christian community which goes double for Presbyterians, Miss Book of Order, Book of Confessions, Book of Common Worship. They all dictate how we do things. The hardest thing is our commitment to maintaining what we have always known to be for the sheer purpose of maintaining it. As Christians, we have a tradition and a practice and a dogma for every season, for every occasion, and for every possibility. And while I 100% believe that these practices and traditions can be beautiful gifts that come along with being connected to 2,000 years of faithful Christians throughout time, I also feel like we often use these dogmas and these traditions to prevent God's disruption in our lives. I just can't back that. Traditions should help us recognize who God is when God is breaking into the world all around us, lest we miss God's arrival like the Sadducees and the Pharisees did that first day that Jesus was born. To deny that God would work outside of our traditions and our dogmas is to deny the God who has worked outside of human convention since the beginning of time. Even more, to deny the God who disrupts is to deny the inbreaking of joy. I want you to listen again to Mary's song from our scripture passage for today. Because remember what has just been told to her. Gabriel has shown up, which is terrifying. He said that she's blessed, which is terrifying. And has announced that her whole entire life has now changed. That all of her dreams had to be given up. And this is how Mary responds. 
My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant, her. The humble state of her. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. I think her words are incredible and crazy. I would never respond to God that way. But there's truth to be had here. Here she is being asked to give all of what she doesn't have into God's hands, which will disrupt the life that she was destined to have for a life that was going to be surrounded by intrigue and by suspicion that would lead her and Joseph and their baby as refugees into a foreign land, a life that would have her watch her son die, which no parent should ever have happen to them. That's the life that she has just been blessed with. And yet here she is declaring that there was joy to be had. Y'all, if she had refused to give all, if she had refused God's disruption in her life, she wouldn't have had any of it. She wouldn't have had any of the fear or the pain. But she also wouldn't have had a joy that proved to be so profound that it has been written down and passed down and learned from for over 2,000 years. She's not paying lip service to this. There's meaning behind it. We might not understand it, but it's been preserved for a reason. And I want to know that joy. I don't know about you. It makes me think that if we, as Christians today concern ourselves with avoiding disruption in order to preserve our contentment with the status quo, in order to preserve the familiarity that we have with our traditions, in order to avoid the potential for experiencing pain and disappointment. It makes me think that we are also avoiding God's calling to both experience joy for ourselves and to become a people of joy for the world. And I think that might be true because not a lot of people describe Christians as joyful people, which means we must have been doing this at some point. We must be missing it somewhere, but we don't have to. Now, of course... Not all joy, not all disruption is joyful. When I preached on joy in Advent six years ago, 26 people had been murdered in an elementary school in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, the Friday morning before this very Sunday. 20 of them had been children. I know, not all joy, not all disruption is joyful, which is no doubt why we often want to resist disruption. Because sometimes our calling as Christians of being people of good news requires us to press back on disruption so that God's good news could be experienced more fully. I know this. So let me say, there is a litmus test for when we should allow ourselves to be overcome by God's disruption and for when we should push back on it. And it's not the test that the society around us would have. As we talked about earlier, our society often measures how much we should endure, how much we should give in enduring, by how much we already have, how much can we spare, how much does it cost. But that's not how the gospel would measure it. That's not how Mary would measure it. That's not how Jesus would measure it. 
Looking at the scripture, the test for when we are to welcome disruption and when we are to resist disruption appears to be this. We are called to embrace any disruption that offers potential for new life. Even if it's not our own new life, but for new life in the world. That's when we are to embrace a disruption. And we are called to press back on any disruption that leads anyone to death, to death of their dreams, of their hopes, of their life, of their emotional life, of their family life. We as Christians are called to embrace the disruption that brings life and to push away the disruption that leads only to death. Most of the time, my friends, I think that embracing God's disruption requires us to give more than we think that we are able to give. I almost think that that can be a litmus test in and of itself. If we really think we can't give it, then chances are we're probably being asked to. To give more than we think we are capable emotionally and spiritually and tangibly. And yet, as we see with Mary, who is agreeing to God's outlandish requests to interrupt and to disrupt our lives, to seeing how that disruption results in joy and results in life to the full and results in transformation of all of the places within our hearts and outside of our hearts that lead us to death, when we see that with Mary, I hope that we long for it ourselves. We are called to press back on those disruptions that lead us to death just as God presses back on death's disruption of life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But first, we are called to allow God to disrupt our lives with joy so that we in turn can be sources of joy for the world outside. Sort of sound a little somber for talking about joy. I don't mean to, but I think the reason is because so much in our lives, it's hard. So much of the time in our lives, it's hard to actually do this. And I recognize we can't do this on our own. We can only do it if we agree to have God do it for us. And the only way God could do it for, for us is if we hand it over and say, here you go. You got to do this. I don't know how. And the good news is that God will. So maybe that's the, the, the reason for the season of joy today, is recognizing that all of this stuff, all of this calling that we have to allow ourselves to be disrupted by joy, for us to go out and being disruptions of joy, is not on our shoulders, it's on God's movement in the Spirit through our lives. Amen? As we go out into the world today, as we reflect on the candles being lit, I invite you to join me in considering how God might be calling you to be a, disrupted, a, be a disruption and to have your life disrupted for joy. Please pray with me. God of light and God of love, you are also the God of joy. And as Presbyterians, we might not always know what joy looks like or feels like when we are in worship, but we know what it looks like and feels like in our hearts because your spirit fills our hearts. May we be people who do not think that we must treasure the hardships over the joy, who think that we must only have joy in measured amounts, but that we might be people who revel in joy as you ask us to, as you gave your life to do. May we not hand it over into death. May we not surrender it for anyone. 
But may we be people who push for joy in society today, conspiring against the ways that our society would only bring death and pain and hurt. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.